communication communication i'm just gonna get a banner that says communication and it's gonna drop down from the ceiling it is the number one skill that everyone needs in this industry across the board This is just a really quick disclaimer. This is an older episode. It was recorded back when I was still in the animation program and we still hadn't really gotten all the kinks out of how to record and everything and we still hadn't actually fully submersed ourselves into the idea that this podcast was going to go further than small discord meetups with other students. So the recording is not the greatest. The quality is not the greatest, but I really hope that you still appreciate all the immense wealth of information that is within this recording. This was an interview done while we were in school. So whenever we talk about things like school and uh, showcase and things like that, the context being that Sarah Connolly, who we're about to interview, was a professor at Algonquin College, the animation program that we went to. And she was specifically my animation professor. And when we talk about things like Showcase, Showcase is the end of year interview slash event that all the students participate in. And it's kind of like your graduating event. And you get to showcase your art, your demo reel, Anyways, again, like to just preface, sorry about the quality kind of going in and out. You can hear Sarah very, very clearly, but on our end, the audio quality is not the best. We apologize for that, and we thank you for listening. Welcome to Evening with an Artist, a podcast created by students for students, where animation junkies Jordan and Rich geek out about animation, interview industry professionals, and ask the questions you want answered. I'm Rich, and I love cartoons. I'm Jordan, and I make cartoons. I don't care about going to the movies. I, there's a meme going around that's like, I don't miss going to the movies. I miss eating candy in a dark room where it's illegal to talk to me. Uh, yeah. And I have never, I have never felt a post more than that. That's I don't want. I don't care about the movies. I want to sit in a dark room where no one can talk to me, and I will just eat my three bags of a variety of snacks. <laughs> <sighs> yes, very fair. My name is Jordan. This is Rich. Uh, I'm a now going into third year Algonquin animation students. Everyone, this is Sarah Connolly. She is a 2D fixer at Mercury Studios. She was also a 2D animation prof at Algonquin for the second year students of last term, and it was awesome. And uh, yeah, she's here to just kind of answer your questions. And uh, don't forget, guys, to put all the questions in the document. I do also want to mention that not only is this recorded, but also Sarah is with Mercury Studios and has signed an NDA, so if there's anything that she feels that she cannot answer, she will not and does not have to answer. And I just want to make sure that everybody is really respectful, both in the chat and the question document and verbally. And this is, you know, a safe space for everybody. And uh, without further ado, maybe Sarah can introduce herself and say some stuff. And we'll yeah. the show. Well, thank you. Um, thanks for having me. I am really excited uh, to get to talk to everyone. I think that this is a really good this is a really great idea because you're absolutely right like in first and second year you're really sort of isolated from not only like your other classmates but 
the industry, you really sort of only get to know the people in your group. But even in third year, you're so nervous about joining the industry and you're getting more exposure, but you're not necessarily having the opportunity to ask the kind of questions you want because that can be hard. I was in a meeting at work that was with a bunch of people and we were given the opportunity to ask questions and give feedback, but it's like really scary to do that sometimes. So I totally get it. So as Jordan said, my name is Sarah. Uh, my pronouns are she, her. I don't, I am, I think my technical title at the studio is a senior animator. Uh, I think my answer to a couple of questions tonight is going to be, well, this is how it works at my studio, but it's not necessarily true at other studios. But generally the senior animator, there'll be like different levels. There's usually junior, intermediate, and senior. At my studio, senior is a little bit of an umbrella. There's other roles that you can have while being a senior animator. So I am a scene fixer. It's also sometimes called a animation revisionist, although different studios, again, use, use different lingo. But I've also been a retakes animator. Um, so I know that one of the questions was asking about what a fixer is. So I can tell you a little bit about what the different jobs I've done, because it also might spawn some questions. But uh, as a senior animator, as I'm sure you can guess, you animate. Um, and so like the role for that is just you get your scenes, you animate. And you do that every week, forever. Uh, and it's pretty cool. Uh, some studios will have like seniors take on more of a leadership role. So at my studio and on specifically on my show, the senior animators have started mentoring our intermediates and juniors. And so that's just giving us an opportunity to A, like on the senior side, get leadership skills and meet people since we are re- working remotely. Um, but then also gives newer animators, um, more people to talk to, make more friends in the studio, and, you know, just an opportunity to learn different things. Um, So a scene fixer uh, is sometimes called a fixer, a revisionist. Uh, There's a couple of different titles, and the exact role will be different at different studios, but actually it'll it's different on at my studio between shows. But typically what my role is as a scene fixer is to go in and fix anything that needs to be fixed in a scene. And that can be at any point in the pipeline. So sometimes an animator might be posing and they're having a hard time posing. I can come in and help them and I can fix up some poses. I can give them some tips. Um, Sometimes the scene is fully animated and the animator can't quite get the revisions the way that the director or the supervisor wants. I can go in and touch it up. Sometimes we get ready to ship the episode and we realize we missed a very important note in the storyboard. I can go in and I can fix that. Uh, And then there's lots of tedious fixes that you will all become very accustomed to, such as cell pops and render problems. And those are also things that I fix, also usually pretty close to the deadline. And then retakes is a similar role. This one is very different across different studios. Uh, Sometimes retakes, which is when you're done your episode, you ship it to the client, and then the client gets to look at it and actually can send revisions back. Those are called retakes. At my studio... Um, the anim- the original animator does not do their retakes. It goes to a specific person. So it would come to me, I would sort through them, and I would send them off to different departments to do different fixes, and I personally will just tackle all of the animation fixes. Uh, so the last two years, those have been the three roles that I have filled, and I have filled all three of them in the last three weeks. So they're all very fresh in my mind. Is there other important things to say? I graduated Algonquin three years ago. Three years ago. Um, So I've been in the industry for three years. I've worked at Mercury Filmworks for all three of them. And yes, and then I also taught second year at Algonquin this year, um, the character animation class. Yeah, I think that's the summary of what I do. Uh, On the note of like doing retakes and and, uh, revisions and stuff, like what's kind of the ratio of 
your role in like coaching as per like fixing the scenes yourself? Mm, that's a very good question. Um, that recently, uh, it has mostly just been, I go in the scene and I fix it and, and I leave it. Uh, if I know the animator well, I might message them and say, hey, just so you know, this is what I fixed in the scene. Uh, it's typically only people that I know well, because I think sometimes it can be hard to to message someone out of the blue. Even if I have the best intentions, I'm cognizant of the fact that they might take it not necessarily bad, but they might be embarrassed to have someone sort of confront them with unsolicited advice. So I definitely don't tend to do that. But if a supervisor or the director has asked me to do that, or if an animator has been like, yo, if you're in my scene, let me know what I'm screwing up, then then I will. But recently we have been shifting more into mentoring because a lot of our seniors want to do that and a lot of them have lots to share. So we're seeing a little bit more of a shift in that direction. So... I think in the future there will definitely be be more of that. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I would definitely like it's you know it's not always easy to take revisions, but I would definitely like someone being like, "Hey, this is what I did," and then you can look back and you know learn and. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I and I do think it's great too. And I I definitely try to be open minded. I think if I'm going to give you one piece of advice from from this whole talk is is to be open minded, not just about revisions, but about like a lot of things. Uh, but I but I know that it is much harder for some people, um, especially if you're not like a trusted colleague that they know especially I don't want to like embarrass a junior when they've just started because you know the first couple of months at the job can be hard um and especially when you're working from home like there's only so much tone that you can deliver with smileys in a message um so I just don't want to scare anyone but but generally people have been receptive and I think that that's important like you kind of you kind of got to be yeah that makes sense what first inspired you to work in the animation industry? This is a fun question because most people go, I was watching this movie and I just knew, or I have always been drawing. And my answer is that I had just finished my bachelor's degree in theater. After I had changed majors seven times, I started in biology um, because I really like science. Yeah, science is dope, but I just could not find a program that I felt really meshed with me and that fit all of my interests. And I actually worked as like, it was kind of in a science education based role for several years. And towards the end of that job, I realized that I had pigeonholed my boss into letting me run creative projects that weren't within the like science education sort of spectrum and so then that's really when I realized like I needed to have a more creative job and I was pretty much at my wits end when I was in my fourth year university not sure what I was gonna do and I we were sitting on my back porch and my mom goes did you know you can go study animation like in Ottawa, like close to where you live. And I was like, no, you can't. And she's like, no, there's an animation program. There's a couple in Toronto too. Like, I think that you should look at that. And I, I just had, it had never occurred to me that you could go to school and learn how to do that. Um, there were a lot of animation. I, I've loved animated films for a really long time. 
and I knew in university I watched Rise of the Guardians and I sobbed like a child and I remember just thinking like I want to be involved in storytelling like that's what I want to do I just didn't know what yet so I did do theater which I actually think was great I think that it really served me um, in animation but then when I found out about animation it is tech there's a bit of science, there's art, there's acting, like it's all of these things that I'm interested in. So just like click together. I can't believe 100% credit goes to my mom. But that was yeah, it just it just felt like such a uncanny puzzle piece connection of all these things that I'd been doing my whole life. So yeah, that's awesome. Hey, yeah, I totally get that. I, there's, I always feel like there's so many like, oh, I drew with my whole life stories and like those are totally 100% valid and awesome and I mm-hmm. wish it for my whole life because I didn't start drawing that much until about a month before I took pre-end so you know like it's totally cool whenever you start whenever you get there and however yeah. you get there and that's and I and I always I did always really like drawing but I had actually not taken an art class before when I had applied to school and I applied directly to the animation program honest to goodness not thinking I was going to get in because I had no formal art training uh and then I was very surprised (laughs) that they took me um but I think that kind of goes to show too like you definitely have advantages in some way if you've been drawing your whole life muscle memory um and like a work ethic but you can pick this up I think at any time so if you're in school now and you're going I'm not sure that I can draw that's fine In fact, I still feel that way and I've graduated the program, but like you can always pick up these skills and you can always learn them and always improve. So it's never too late, (laughs) but yeah, it's very learnable, I think. That's awesome. You were in the thick of it and you were animating and doing all the things and then you Mm -hmm. were like, I want to add twice much work to my workload Mm -hmm. and teach. What made you want to do that? Um, well, before I went into biology, I very nearly almost went to teacher's college um, because teaching is always a thing that I've really enjoyed. As cliche as it sounds, sharing knowledge is really fun and very rewarding for me. And I think, too, education in particular, I'm quite passionate about, which is, I'm sure, annoying. But like, I think that educators hold such an important role in people's lives, not only in their professional careers, but in their like personal development. I had so many good teachers that really affected my career path, but also I think who I became as a person. And I also had a lot of teachers who did that in a not good way. And at the college level in particular, I think teaching sometimes gets a bad rap because it's a lot of people who don't care about teaching or don't know about teaching. Uh, And I just felt like I wanted to give it a shot and, and do what I could. And, you know, there were things that went well and things that didn't go so great. But I just really want to, like, help the people behind me up the ladder because so many people helped me up the ladder when I went through it. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, like, you were amazing. I don't know how we would have gotten through the year without you. It was ridiculous. Thank you. Especially, like, oh, you're going to be in full-time online. All of the things, all of the things were happening. And they were all like, second year is the worst year. And I was like cool this sounds like fun it's gonna be great and you know it was great well I'll tell you so I was when I was initially applying for the teaching jobs I was like I'll teach first year or third year and then the opening came and I was like oh please please be first year or third year like it's second year and I did have a moment where I was like am I gonna do it 
I mean, I won't speak for for you all, but it was it was fine. Yeah, it, it could have been worse. <laughs> yeah, finally, finally took away to describe second year for sure. Yeah, I, I I definitely think it could have been worse, and like I'm sure everybody's perspective is totally different. Mm-hmm. And that's totally okay. Yeah. But yeah. Oh, I know. I know. For some people, it was it was probably the worst class they ever took, and that's okay. I wish that it wasn't, but I understand. I understand why for sure. Next question: How do you manage or prevent wrist, back, and neck pain with working at your desk all Mm -hmm. of the time? This is where I'm going to temporarily step onto my soapbox because so I'm either the best or the worst person to ask this question to I actually have chronic pain problems and I've had them since I was about 10 um so on one hand I'm quite familiar uh but on the other hand I'm quite familiar and so the one I will give you a fun answer in a minute but I do have to step on the box a little bit and just say that I do think that it's really important that you find a trusted healthcare professional. And I say that with seriousness, but also understanding how complicated that can be. It's time consuming. It can cost a lot of money. And a lot of people have really negative experiences in the healthcare system, racism, prejudice, sexism, homophobia, you name it. Um, And so I recognize that. And that's why I'm emphasizing trusted healthcare professional. Um, It can be hard, but The reason that's important is because with the care of your body, it's so important to be talking to someone that you know what's who knows what's going on. A, this has been a thing that I've experienced a lot, but an example was in third year, I had really bad shoulder pain. Like it like life drawing, I was almost in tears by the end of class. And so I'm doing some Googling and I'm looking at these shoulder exercises and I'm doing them and it's actually only getting worse. And so I went to the physiotherapist. And it turns out it wasn't a shoulder problem. I actually had a neck injury. And because I had been searching for shoulder exercises, the exercises I was doing was not helping my neck. And I was also not being careful about what I was doing with my neck. So I actually made it worse. And so it's important to me that people are getting information from a trusted source and someone who can help them individually. There's also lots of trusted sources on the internet that don't necessarily apply to you. So um, you don't necessarily need to find a family doctor. There's lots of different options, but I just want to put that out there. I know that it's hard and I know that there's so many barriers to access, but that's been something that's been important to me. I looked into carpal tunnel because both my wrists are like super bad. My right one obviously is even worse. And when I went and got tested for it and I had all my nerves tested, which is not so I'm getting in EMGs, not a good time Um, but uh yeah like I was talking to the doctor there that was saying like oh your nerves are actually okay it's musculoskeletal like issues I was like okay what do I do and he was all Mm. like oh you can like take Advil and you can like rub creams on it and I was like no no like what do I do to prevent and like actually fix the problem and he was like google it yeah (sighs) yeah well, so, and I think, yeah. and I, so that's common. Because he's like more of like a surgeon. Yeah. He just wanted yeah. to fix my, if I actually had carpal tunnel, he wanted to fix that with surgery. He yeah. had no, no idea. No intention of helping me whatsoever. So like, make sure you get referred to the right people. I mean, I had to get my, yeah. my nerves checked. It had to happen, but like, yeah. But that's, and that, and, you know, and, and also like finding someone whose opinion that you trust, like, I, I do think it's really important that you trust yourself like you know when something's wrong and 
you know, it might take a while to sort of figure out what it is, but trust your gut. If you feel like something is wrong, do not let people like invalidate that experience. You have to be open to what all the options are because it might not be what you first suspect, but you, you know, you're not usually wrong when, when you think that "Mm, I'm experiencing pain, it's probably fake pain. But the other thing that's really cool is, so there's like a whole study about like sitting at your desk and how it's bad for you. So you can actually hire, I think it's called an ergonomist to come in, like check out your workspace and they'll tell you all the things that you're doing wrong. And it's probably a lot of them. Um, You can also, this is something you can look up a little bit because it gives you ratios on like what the angle of your elbow is supposed to be, where your feet are supposed to be in relation to your hips and how high they are. Um, But you can hire someone to like come in and check out your space. Some companies will actually hire people to come in and do this assessment for their staff. I haven't asked my work yet since I'm not back at work. But um, that's something that I would love to see in the industry is animation companies um, like having these assessments done on a regular basis. But I mean, like it can honestly make the world of difference. There's a lot of equipment, different equipment you can get. My But I have two tips that I am comfortable offering because they're based on my personal experience and they are not medical advice. One of them is getting up out of your chair all the time. I have a reminder on my watch. Every hour I get up and I dance around my room uh, for two minutes. When I'm in the studio, I just walk up and down the stairwell. But I just that way every single hour, I'm not spending more than an hour sitting at my desk um, and getting up and moving does really help like consistently. If you're you know, like, well, I'll just walk for 10 minutes after four hours. It's not quite the same thing as, as constantly um, relieving that pressure and moving. I also like to go for walks at lunch when it's not 4 million degrees outside. But I found that really good because it does break up the sitting between the morning and the afternoon. But it also has been great for clearing my head and it puts me in a much better mood and I'm much more ready to walk. Uh, it is too hot, though, so... Um, I have not been doing that, so I should get back on it. Uh, But then my other advice is to get equipment that helps you do your job. For me personally, I find, so when you're typing a lot, you're like moving your your hand to and from the mouse. And for me personally, I found that really aggravating on my wrist and my elbow. So I bought a gaming mouse so that everyone thinks I'm very cool. They ask me what games I play and I say like Stardew Valley, but I also haven't opened it in six months. (laughs) Um, So I specifically have a Razer Naga Trinity. And I got it other side um, because it's got a bunch of buttons. And so what I've done on my buttons is I've set hotkeys that require two hands or a big stretch on the keyboard that's uncomfortable. Um, so that way, instead of having to repeatedly move my hands to use them because they're very common hotkeys, I just push a button. It also has the option to increase and decrease sensitivity. So if I'm having a really bad wrist day, I can adjust how much I need to move my arm in order to make my movements this is also a huge time saver if i can tune up turn up the sensitivity and zoom right in and get a really precise really small adjustment and the buttons make me a lot faster but there's a whole bunch of devices like that that you can try out Uh, my friends swear by i should have looked it up after i talked about it in class i think they're called num pads and it's just like a little tiny box that sits next to your keyboard and it just has a bunch more buttons so it's like this but there's like 20 of them so it's just another way for you to like limit your movement or change what your movement is um but there's tons of stuff like that they're awesome i think i'm gonna have to get one i'm just gonna have like a whole i'm gonna have the whole light up keyboard collection yeah, by the time that i return to work it's like a rainbow assortment of everything 
Yeah. Yeah. Someone I know personally like recommended this mouse that is like actually a giant uh, on a giant ball, like almost like a oh yes ball. And apparently that's like really really good for like wrist issues and finger issues and stuff with using a mouse all the time. And that mouse yeah. was recommended to me. And then so I kind of wanted to get that and then have the gaming like key keypad with all the buttons on it for like my left hand. I should probably get an ergonomic mouse. I don't think that these ones are very ergonomic, but I'm also like, I don't know how, if I can learn, have the mental capacity to learn a new mouse right now. It's really but, hard. And also, I'm like, I watched this on like a notes podcast, podcast that was just about this kind of thing was like, it's also about having more than one mouse, more than one keyboard. It sounds like a lot and it is, but like, especially yeah. if you work from home, and you also like in your spare time to draw on the computer more and play video games or do all that stuff. You should have different mice and keyboards yeah. because continuing to use the exact same thing, ergonomic or not, still puts strain on you. But if you're it's the same repetitive yeah. motion. So if you're the other thing um, that I've heard that people have recommended is actually using your like taking a break from the mouse and using um, your drawing tablet to like just do your regular functions. It might take a little bit longer, but that'll definitely give you some a different range of motion. I actually prefer my pen to a mouse. Yeah, so I'm, when I get into it, yeah. I, I do for sure. Are you able to find a lot of time to draw for yourself and work on personal projects, or does work take a lot of energy out of you? The answer, as annoying as it is, is that it really depends. Depends on what role I'm working in and what show I'm working on my emotional and mental capacity outside of work in the pandemic it's been pretty rough as I think a lot of people have been experiencing I have a lot less energy even if my job isn't that consuming um so recently it's been a bit tough but the big difference between school and working in the industry is that you don't have homework so when you're done you are done and sometimes you even have less hours of work than you do class so you can like end up with oodles of free time i work on lots of personal projects like all the time i have a cricket machine it's a die cutting machine it's not big on tiktok apparently so i do a lot of that right now i'm very into knitting play a bunch of instruments like these are all time consuming things and i have time to keep up with them i don't draw a lot outside of work but a lot of my friends do and they find time for it. People have find time to do short films. Um, I'm not quite there <laughs> yet, but uh, people are definitely able to, to make that work. And then some people aren't, I think some people really work and then kind of crash in the after hours. But I think that that is rare and that's actually a problem to be worked on. If you're finding that you're coming home from work and you have no energy to do anything literally at all in, in your after hours, then that's a problem that can and should be fixed. I think that's totally fair. I know that there's a little from studio to studio, like there's some leeway and like what hours when you start, mm. like not everybody always starts like at the 9am to 5 and like, yeah, so it's, it'll, I know some people that manage their time different ways depending on how best they work and how to get stuff done in like their free time. Yeah. Uh, does your role during the day affect how much energy you have? Like if you're working in more of a supervisory role, you find you have more energy when you get home and maybe more inspiration from looking at mm. other people's stuff and helping them. Does that make it make you more productive at home doing your own things as opposed to if you've been animating all day and you're like, oh, I just don't want to touch it anymore. Like, yeah, it totally does. 
And I think for me, the task definitely matters. I'm usually actually when I have a day when I have a lot of meetings, I'm like pumped at the end of the day. So I think I'm probably an extrovert because I get so much energy from talking with people. So now that we've started mentoring, when I have a big mentoring day, like I'm, I'm pretty stoked at the end of the day. And so I do have more energy when I find that I don't have a lot of energy is when we're getting really close to a deadline and things are really hectic. So sometimes for retakes, the shipment dead deadline is like really stressful because you have work coming in from like all of these different departments at once. Usually when you ship an episode normally, like animation is done, layout is done, BG is done. There's maybe some effects, maybe some compositing, but like in retakes, like everyone is finishing the day before it's due. Uh, and those days I find that I don't have a lot of energy because I'm spending all day worrying thinking are we going to be able to get it in did I miss something we there's also a time difference so like how many hours different is it can we squeeze it in an hour late and still technically squeeze it in on time um but yeah it definitely depends on like I well for me anyway it depends on on what role I'm fulfilling in the day when you do retakes are you responsible for the whole project like you said you get it and then like divvy it out to different departments then do you have to collect it and recompile it all and ship the final product back or like submit the final so, product yourself? Basically what happens is Disney or Netflix or whoever your client is um, will have a central point of contact somewhere in production. And so production will like unpackage it for me and we'll like do a preliminary search. They'll decide whether we will do the retakes for free or whether we pay for them. I'm not going to get into that complicated thing. But if you're interested, hit me up on Instagram or something. I'll talk about it. Um, it's semantics really, but um, they'll kind of do like that decision. And then when I get it, it's just up to me go, Oh, this is a compositing fix. I'll send it to compositing. I'll send this to effects. I can do this in animation. I think I can handle this in animation, but if not, I'll send it back to BG. And so then I kind of do that thing. And then we all send our work back to compositing and the people who edit our videos, but they, they package it up. They do their IT magic. And then, and then they're the ones who are responsible for sending it out. But I'm sort of responsible and overseeing like the groundwork stuff that's the day-to-day stuff that's going on. But even that's different show to show. There are some shows where the retakes animator is just like a scene fixer. They don't have any sort of like overview on what's going on. And that's also very different at other studios. Like I said, sometimes the original animator does all their own retakes. Can you speak a tiny bit more on mentorship and what that looks like? Like if you were in studio, would it literally be like you guys sitting at a desk together? Or is it like because now... Do you go through the scene with them or is it just kind of like you send them tidbits? Totally depends on what the animator wants and needs. Um, So in the studio, yeah, like typically you might have a lead animator or a senior mentor or something. And you just like pop by people's desks and be like, hey, how's it going? Do you want to show me your plan for the week? Are there any scenes you're struggling with? Um, Sometimes a supervisor will reach out to me and say, hey, so-and-so is really having a hard time with this scene. Can you reach out with them and go through the following revisions with them so that they have someone to talk to because if the supervisor doesn't necessarily have time to like answer questions about the revisions, um, sometimes having a senior do that just gives them a bit more of a discussion rather than fix this, fix this, fix this. For me and my mentees, we've been working on time management a lot right now. Uh, And so typically I'm checking in at the beginning and the end of the week to see their plan. We face or not FaceTime, but teams face 
calling um or or just chat and we like take a look at their scenes and i assess if i think their plan is reasonable or how i might have planned it talk about pitfalls and then they work for the week and i check in at the end and we see how things go and if they didn't go great we try to figure out why and then plan differently next week sort of based on what the animator wants and needs i do have people asking me for like technical problems this will make more sense in the future. Some of these things I'm saying, you'll like get to in two years and be like, oh, this is what she meant. Um, you have to like animate the same character on multiple builds, sometimes, very rarely. But it can then be hard to pop into the other build without it looking obvious. So I had someone asking me a question about that. And so you're like, well, here's option A, here's option B, here's option C, here are the pros and cons. Pick what you think would work, or none of the above. Sometimes characters do costume changes in the middle in the middle of a scene um and so you'll have to pop them between a costume change what if they're like cinderella in and sparkles are coming down and their outfit is slowly changing as the sparkles go down (laughs) okay well so here's a technical question with sarah um so there's a couple ways you could do it the number one thing that you're going to think of when you get a scene like this is you're going to say effects is going to help me Effects is going to make sparkles. Effects is probably going to put some wipey wipes on it. If you're in a really wipe heavy show that's pretty cartoony, you can draw your own wipes or smears. That's when you kind of like make you like imagine that you've put ink on the cell and you've just like smeared it to to create some space and some movement. Um, Wipes are dope. Um, But you're going to remember that effects is here to help you. And then there's sort of two ways you could do it. Uh, And it does depend on, well, there's more than two ways, but the two ways I would approach it would be um, to have each of the builds have elements of each other inside of them. So let's say she's changing from Cinderella from her like peasant ripped up dress to like the big blue ball gown. I would put some elements of the blue gown into the normal dress and I'd take some of the normal dress into the blue dress. And so then that way, like on frame 62, you swap builds, but you still have some colors and some pieces to work with. So you can like rotate elements through as you're going down the character. The other thing you could do, and I honestly think that this would probably be easier. So it's probably what I would do is I would animate the two builds. If she's like turning or something or like doing an arm gesture, I would animate it on the two builds and use a cutter. And so then what I would do with the cutter is I would have all of the old build hidden. And then as she's like spinning, the cutter goes down and reveals the other build. Um, And that's probably going to be pretty easy for effects to do. I guess the third option is you make her spin so fast that you just do a really big wipe and then she pops out in the other build. Um, But that would have to be like a really snappy show. And I'm not sure that Cinderella is super snappy, but these are some of my favorite questions. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well this is what I love like I I used to not like these really technical things but now I love them because it's like a escape room yeah. but it's my job like how can I do this thing that is like seemingly impossible what was your job interview like and do you have advice for how to prepare um so I did do some job interviews some of them were barely interviews um uh, like at all which is hilarious. I think that's less of the case now. I do think more studios are doing like actual interviews. Um, so my, and and I, so I'll tell you my experience, but I know that it's changed at different studios. Um, Mercury, I did an animation test and we had a small group interview. It was really just like me and I think two or three other animators. And we went up and um, met with a senior mem- member of management 
they toured us around the studio. We talked a little bit about our interests and what our goals were for like working in the industry because we were all students. It was part of a mass student hire, but it wasn't, it was not a traditional job interview at all. Um, and I know that that is pretty common um, or it has been in the past. I think that things are changing a little bit. We're getting a bit more interviews, which I do think is good. I think that you should have a discussion with the people you want to hire slash that you want to be hired by. Like having a discussion is really important. At, at other studios, I did have a job interview and it was mostly asking about so a, a little bit about like what my goals are for the industry. Where do I see myself in 10 years? Like all the classics. But then also a lot of questions about technical things. How comfortable am I in Harmony? Do I know how to use Maya? Am I comfortable animating two characters interacting, like so physically touching? Am I comfortable using props? Am I comfortable with cutters? Am I comfortable with the node view? My demo reel had mostly acting in it, so I got a lot of questions about whether or not I felt comfortable or felt proficient in doing action scenes. So there is some of that, but it is, I'd say, like a you know pretty standard interview stuff. In terms of uh, what to prepare, Google the studio and find out what kind of shows they work on. Uh, some studios do not do adult shows. Some studios do almost exclusively, if not exclusively, adult shows. Knowing what kind of show and what kind of animation style the studio typically does is also helpful, A, in the screening process about whether or not you even want to apply there, uh, but they are probably going to ask you questions about that thing. So uh, Mercury, when I applied was animating almost exclusively full style animation. So very soft, very flowy, very grounded in realism. Whereas right now we're doing a lot of really snappy, really fast and quick shows and they require very different skill sets. And so we did have questions sort of catered towards how do you, how comfortable are you doing really subtle acting? Because that's really hard. So finding out what kind of shows the studio animates and also like if you're chill doing adult stuff, a lot of people aren't. Also, are you chill doing primarily preschool stuff? Because a lot of people also aren't chill with that. Um, make sure you have questions. Find out. Don't ask questions for the sake of asking questions. But but find out things that are important to you that you want to make sure you have in a studio. So that might be, do you allow flexible work from home? Do you allow flexible work hours? Uh, do you have... Uh, professional development programs so by that I mean like do they have programs set up to train people in other departments or in other roles if they want to move into other places a lot of places don't but some places do and if that matters to you that's important to ask about what is something so I typically ask about uh, professional development because I want to see what their answer is if they're completely caught off guard that's a red flag for me so I don't necessarily need a very robust plan but if you've never even thought about that before that's that's a problem. Uh, what is your onboarding process for new employees? Yeah. So that's, I interviewed with a studio and I asked them like what the process was like and, and how long they typically give people to ramp up. And they told me that they expected that there would be a short period um, of ramp up, but that in two to three weeks I should be doing um, 500 frames a week. Um, which is absurd to give you like some clarity as a senior, I am doing 400 a week at Mercury. It does depend on the complexity of a show on a much simpler show. I could do a lot more frames, but 500 a week in two to three weeks for a brand new person, fresh out of school was nuts. Um, it took me several months and it takes, and that was still pretty fast. 
Um, for some people, it can take like a year. And was like a lot of this interview process, like was some of that during showcase, like some of your other short ones and stuff, or did you do that kind mm. of stuff later? And you can so maybe, we... you can also zoom into like what you were planning on getting hired for and what you took in third year too. Oh yeah, that's true too. Oh, it's so nice having people who um, I have spoken to who can be like, you forgot this very important detail. Um, <laughs> So my studio day, I think only two studios interviewed for jobs on the spot. Um, so I didn't do any interviews on my studio day. And I was crushed um, because I thought that that was going to be the pinnacle. And like, it, and, and people did tell you, and I'm here to tell you it's not true. People would tell you if you didn't get an interview on studio day, you weren't good enough to get a job. That's not true. If you don't get an interview on studio day, that's like not uncommon at all. And it does not have any reflection on your talent. Um, so just let's put that out there. Uh, I, so I had interviews, I interviewed for a like internship position in like February or March or something, uh, that I didn't get. And then all of my interviews after that were after school. So I was approached by Mercury at studio day and I was told that they want me to take a test. I didn't do an interview, but I got a card to contact to take a test. Um, and I think I got them from a couple of other studios as well. And then my other interviews all happened um, remotely. It was like video chats because they were mostly for studios in Toronto. Uh, and so I had an interview for those studios before doing a test. Uh, and so I believe I didn't do any tests for any other studios because I had heard back from Mercury before I got the test for the other studios. So I really only did that one test. Um, because I knew that I wanted to, A, want work at Mercury, but B, didn't really want to move to Toronto. Um, so I, what Jordan was alluding to was that I specialized in 3D animation in school, and I was contacted almost exclusively for 2D positions. And so I was a little bit disappointed, but I knew that I really wanted to work at Mercury in part because I felt like the shows and the style that they were working on were in line with what I wanted to do. And I had a really good experience with um, the people that I knew that worked there. All the times that I'd gone to tour and that I'd gone to do my internship at, um, interview with, like all those experiences were really good. And I just... I don't know, I had like a gut feeling that this was a place that I could really flourish. And so I was really set on on going there. So when I when they offered me a 2D job, and I honestly thought I was going to hate it. And for the first like six to eight months, I was like, combing for like 3D openings at Mercury, like anytime I caught a whiff, I was like, hello. And then I just like woke up one day and I was like, I actually really like 2D. Like all of the things that I thought that I was were going to be a hindrance or that I didn't have the skills for either weren't a problem or I learned how to do them. Um, and, and so once I got over that fear of not or not feeling like I understood the software enough to to do what I wanted to do. I just like really started enjoying my work and really feeling like this is actually where I want to go. And now I haven't opened Maya in three years, so I don't know how to use Maya. I opened it briefly once and promptly closed it. Um, <laughs> so it does, that's, you know, that's why you should stay open-minded because you sometimes don't know what you're going to like. That's not everyone's experience. I've been very lucky, but um, that is a common question we get too. Like, can you use a demo reel for different things? The answer is yes, um, for the most part. If you're applying for a 3D job, people often want 
you to be a 3D animator because the software is a pain in the butt uh, to teach. Uh, whereas a lot of 2D studios will look at animation potential and go, we can teach you how to use Harmony. You can animate and that's what we care about. Um, but you definitely apply for, for different jobs with like the opposing demo reel. Those are some awesome interview tips. Um, could you also just circle back and just kind of talk about show style and frame rate and kind of how those go together and how that all works? Yeah, often adult shows have very limited animation, so you can blow through frames much quicker. But as soon as you have to do, like, very full-body animation, it, it gets a lot more time-consuming, so you can do a lot less. Yeah. I, um, like, that kind of would be, like, Tangled probably versus sort of what you're working Tangled on. is very full. Lion Guard was very full. Mm-hmm. All my other examples haven't been released, so I can't talk about them. But I'm trying to think of, like, what shows I've watched recently on Netflix. Um, like, Kid Cosmic. Kid Cosmic is an interesting example because the animation is, quote-unquote, limited in that it's quite snappy. Like, really snappy. Um, it's the snappiest thing I've ever worked on. And I was only on it for a couple of weeks. But it was, like, it was nuts. Um, sometimes I would submit posing and they'd be like... It's animated, and I'd be like, there's, like, two poses just repeated the whole time. There's no follow-through. What? Um, Those are my favorite scenes. Uh, But uh, the quota on that wasn't ridiculously high because the line work required so much attention to detail that you would spend 90% of your week tweaking the lines to make sure that the lines were perfect and beautiful and flowed. Because you actually, if you, like breakdown a really good scene on kid cosmic you can actually see like that the animator has tried to connect um the lines through the body like a drawing so you we would often i was really only on it for about a month but i would draw out my poses and then try to see where my line breaks naturally and then replicate that on the build um, and it's a textured line, so it took forever because you had to like make sure that the texture works. So despite the fact that the anim- animation can be quite limited, um, the, the posing and the amount of work and like finesse that went into each pose completely negated um, how quick it was to animate. So it's, it's based on a variety of factors. How often generally do you have to stay late or come in on weekends to work? I'm a very bad person to ask this question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so my answer is that I do not do it all the time. Um, but I do over time, like, so extra work in the evenings and extra work on the weekends, probably more than maybe I should. Um, but a lot of that is because I choose to, uh, and I'm not saying that in like a facetious way, Uh, Sometimes I get really into a scene and I just really want to take it to 90 when it maybe only needs to go to 70. Uh, And so sometimes that can be a problem because if you're burning out, you should be stopping. Uh, But I have found that trying to push myself to get closer to 90 um, has taught me a lot. And so, you know, putting in an extra two or three or four hours a week is an extra two or three or four hours of learning time. So especially when I first started around like March, just before I'd been there a year, I felt like I had like this really, really huge growth because I had been doing some overtime, not a ton, but like a little bit consistently throughout so that um, I actually learned how to solve problems instead of just like asking my supervisor to give them away. 
that is not always sustainable. And so I do sometimes get myself into a problem where I have bit off way more than I can chew. And at that point, you have two options. And it is to tell your supervisor that you've bit off more than you can chew and ask them for help. Um, or the other one is to succumb to your feelings of guilt and just quietly do a bunch of overtime to dig yourself out of the hole that you've gotten yourself into. That is not the option that I recommend, but it is the option that I default to a lot um, because I am very invested in my work. And it's very hard for me to tell people that I've bitten off more than I can chew. Um, I'm getting better at it. But it is really hard, and this is the conversation I had with one of my bosses recently, it's hard to stop doing overtime sometimes because I can see the progress that I make when I do it. Uh, and, and when I know that the show is behind, I feel a lot of pressure to step up and do more so that the team isn't even more behind, which is not my job um, and isn't sustainable I do think that there is a time and place to do overtime, um, and that's if you weren't really working during the day, uh, which sometimes happens when you work from home. Um, if you've done something stupid that you knew that you shouldn't have done and you did it anyway. Um, so I mean, like, the board said to do a very specific action and you didn't, didn't do it, and then that creates problems for a lot of other people. Maybe you should consider stepping up and, and trying to do a little bit um, or if something disastrous has happened, um, which unfortunately that is not always uncommon. Uh, so if like someone on your team has an emergency, but there's also an emergency deadline, um, you know, maybe I'll step in and, and pick up extra scenes so that they just get done and we don't have to worry like this, you know, people can have time off or whatever. I don't think that's a requirement. That's a, a personal thing that I think is important to, what I think my role is in the studio, but I have a very hard time saying no to things, which is how I ended up with three jobs at once. I was doing just after school, I was doing 15 to 20 hours of overtime a week. And so I did reach out to my team and I was like, Oh, Hey, I'm, I've got myself into a hole. And I was really afraid that they were all going to say, but we need you to get the work done. Like it's, we're counting on you to get the work done. And all of them went, that's too many. We're going to take this and we're going to take this. You can't do that many hours. Tell us what you feel comfortable doing, but we don't want you doing any extra if it's not valuable to you. Sometimes it is. all the extra work off your plate, did you feel like you were being punished? Were you like, no, 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 no. get it done. Um, okay, so sometimes, sometimes when I have a very good scene that I don't want to give up, I will not tell people that I am working overtime so that no one takes it away. I'm not <laughs> saying that that's a, that's a good behavior, but I am just being honest. These are things that you are going to learn, have to learn how to deal with. I have made it three years into my job, and I have... That is a thing that I wish that I was better at was just letting it go because there will be other scenes that I care about. But you get paid for overtime. It depends on the situation, but typically no. So if I'm just decided that I want to put an extra five hours into a scene, I don't get paid for that time because the studio has not asked me to do that. The example when I was working sort of the three jobs at once, when I was doing an after hours project, I got paid for those hours. So this is like, the whole issue with overtime is that sometimes people will put 30 hours of unpaid overtime into their work. And so they'll be working 70 hours a week, but only getting paid for 40. And that's not sustainable. And it's also not sustainable if you have two jobs. But yeah, so if they ask you to work overtime, 
a good studio will pay you. Yes. And I'm going to leave it at that. Typically, I have never been asked to work overtime unpaid. Um, and I do think it's a red flag. Maybe in an emergency, maybe they might not. And then maybe you can actually arrange time off in lieu. That's the other thing that studios will do is say, hey, can you work on Saturday, but we'll give you next Tuesday off. But if you are working at a place that is explicitly and deliberately saying we need you to work on Saturday, but we're not going to pay you, that is a problem. But what I'm talking about is, A, my own personal (laughs) issues, but also a desire to learn. I do get carried away. And then also like my own struggles with feeling guilty about pulling my weight on my show and handling it myself instead of talking to my supervisor. If you are doing overtime, you should be telling your supervisor. You should probably also be telling your manager. Those might not be the two same people, but the problem is not. I promise you, because I have done it in the past six months, you will not catch up. The problem is not just going to go away. If you take a sick day and work through it, you are still not going to get caught up. So at some point, you've got to talk to your people. And I know that it's hard because it's hard for me. The note of like working your own overtime secretly and not telling your supervisors, like one pitfall of that is that you've now put 20 extra hours into this work. If you, if you're like consistently doing that and they're getting this quality of work back, thinking that it took you 40 hours to do this quality Mm -hmm. of work, they're going to keep giving you harder and harder work to do in the same amount of time. Yes. Ramping up your secret overtime hours. Well, and that's it. And that is, that has been a very big problem. I'd say like across the industry. I have only worked at my one studio, but I have friends at other studios and this is pretty consistent. Uh, and so that's, that is why I'm really harping on you need to talk to your people and tell them that you're doing this. Because I did, I've, I've been on a couple of shows that were a bit tumultuous. And so when I did initially reach out for help and I didn't get any, I then escalated it and I said, hey, I'm doing 20 hours of overtime a week. And they were like, we had no idea that this is what was happening. We just thought you were doing this in a normal work week. This is unacceptable. And then solutions were found. So the other thing, too, is sometimes the first person you talk to isn't necessarily going to have the the solution. You do have to go through the proper channels. I do recommend it because often people are not as scary as you think they're going to be. Um, but communication, communication. I'm just going to get a banner that says communication and it's going to drop down from the ceiling. It is the number one skill that everyone needs in this industry across the board. Wow. Thank you so much, Sarah. That was so much information. That was really helpful. I'm sure that a lot of people are going to get a lot out of all of that. If you enjoyed listening to Sarah Connolly talk about the animation industry, please check out part two in this interview series. And we'll see you in part two. Thank you for listening. If you have as much fun with these episodes as we have making them, consider following us on Instagram and Twitter at Evening with an Artist. Get up-to-date news on future events, episodes, and more. You can also check out our website, eveningwithanartist.com, for a look at previous recordings, interviewees, news, and upcoming shows. We would love to hear from you, so send us a DM on Instagram or email us at jordanandrich at eveningwithanartist.com. Don't forget to join our community on Discord and see where it all started. Here, you can chat with other members and submit your interview questions. Did you enjoy the music? All the tunes on our podcast were created by our music man, Dougal Dawson. To learn more about Dougal and listen to an uncut version of the Iwa tunes, you can find him on our website. If you'd like to support the show, visit the donation page on our website, linked throughout all our social media, to help fund equipment, production, and guest speakers. 
Until next time. I've been Rich. I've been Jordan. And this has been Evening Evening with with an an Artist. Artist.